you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to take a brief break from our study of 1 Peter this week and next in order to draw unique attention this morning to a special element of Christ's redemptive work that will be commemorated this upcoming week on Thursday and is a moment that has been faithfully celebrated by Christians for millennia but has fallen on hard times in recent years, I guess you could say here in the American West. And that's a shame because we as Christians are to be all about Christ. And every opportunity we have to draw attention to His glorious person and work, we ought to do it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, We are to behold the glory of the Lord. And again, in Psalms 29, verse 2 states, We are to proclaim the glory of the Lord. So the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to be what we're as Christians all about. Beholding His glory and proclaiming it. As 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So to behold and to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ for our encouragement and for the salvation of the lost is the sum total of our Christian life. To behold and proclaim. And yet there is a unique aspect of Christ's glorious work that most Christians completely overlook and neglect to remember and to embrace, an aspect of Christ's redemptive work that frankly was the powerhouse and the motivation behind the entirety of the early church's preaching and practice. And we in American Protestant Christianity, myself sadly included, hardly ever even think about it. If you were to ask the average American Christian this question, what climactic moments and events from Christ's life do you think that all believers ought to remind themselves of regularly? The answer you'd probably get would be related to our major holidays. Well, there's Christmas, so we ought to celebrate and study Jesus' birth. There's Good Friday, so we ought to study and celebrate Jesus' death. And there's Easter, so we ought to study and celebrate Jesus' resurrection. So there it is, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. Those are big moments from Christ's life and work that we ought to study and celebrate together as believers. If you were to ask them, is there anything else, you'd probably get a blank stare. Christ's work? Why, that is his life, and it's his death, and it's his resurrection. That's the gospel. Those are the big three. What else is there? Well, I would like to propose this morning that Easter's not the end of our celebrating. There is a, well, there's many more, but I'm going to present to you today, there is at least a fourth major event from Christ's life that we ought to study and celebrate together regularly as Christians, and that is the moment of Christ's ascension. When He was physically caught up by the clouds of glory into heaven, into the very presence of God as Father. We as Christians sadly tend to fold the glories of Christ's ascension into the glories of His resurrection as if they were one and the same event, but they are not. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ are two clearly distinct events. Moments that took place over 40 days apart. Moments that are filled with their own unique glory and divine purpose. And we ought not to do a disservice to the glory of Christ's ascension by conflating it with His resurrection. No, this wonderful moment 
stands on its own, and it ought to. And it is pregnant with its own purpose and worth, and we would do well as Christians to study and celebrate it together. This is what the early church did. Why the ascension of Christ was one of the most treasured doctrines of the early church. It was the moment that they regularly preached about. On Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 33, Peter preached these words, This Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. He is exalted at the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which you see poured out upon you today. And again, in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter preaches, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And then in verse 21, Heaven has received Jesus until the time for the restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago comes to pass. So the ascension was a moment that the early church preached about. And it was a moment that they sang about as well regularly. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul inscripturates an ancient hymn that was sung by the early church. And it is a hymn that drives towards and climaxes with Christ's ascension. Paul writes these words, He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The reality of the ascended Christ was central to the life of the church. And it still is, whether we recognize it or not. The ascension of Jesus Christ is not an afterthought to the Gospel. It is, as I've been studying it, it is in many ways the moment that the entirety of Christ's life and work was always driving towards. The moment Jesus came down, He was working to when He would go back up. It is the triumph of Christ's story, the ascension. And it is the hinge upon which the entire New Testament turns. And so I want all of us today to study and to celebrate this moment together and just to glory in the awe of Christ's ascension as a church body together. And we're going to do this over two weeks through six points taken from Luke's first recorded account of the ascension given in Luke 24, 50 through 53. We're going to see at the beginning of verse 50 that the ascension first points to our promise. That Jesus gives us a promise the ascension reminds us of. And then second, at the end of verse 50, that the ascension proves our protection. That the ascension reminds us of a relationship we have with Jesus that means something in the here and now. And then third, at the beginning of verse 51, we're going to see the ascension pictures our power. The power that we have in Christ as believers. And then, at the end of verse 51, we're going to see the ascension proclaims our proponent that Christ is on high and He is for us. And all that that means. Then in verse 52, we're going to see that the ascension passes on our purpose. That the ascension reminds us that we are still here for a reason. 
And then finally, in verse 53, we're going to see that the ascension provokes our praise. In other words, when we remember that Christ is exalted on high, it transforms our worship. And so this is the awe of Christ's ascension. Uh, It has been a delight to study. And it highlights the glories of the promise, protection, power, proponent, purpose, and praise that belongs to us as those who are in the exalted Christ. And we'll just look at the first three today so that we can celebrate this whole week about the truths of the exalted Jesus. So with that in mind, let's stand as we read Luke 24. Please stand with me as we read Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. Luke, the doctor, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us. Man, I just got to back up to verse 44. (laughs) Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. Then He led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That's the awe of Christ's ascension. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that You teach us Your statutes so that our lips would pour forth praise. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it reveals to us the glory of Jesus. Help us, Father, not to speak of a Jesus who was, but of a Jesus who is, who is right now in Your presence as Lord and Savior and coming Judge. He is preeminent over all. And may we be a people that exalts the exalted Christ. Remind us of the glories of Jesus' ascension today, Father, so that we would live this next week completely different, following in the path of the early church itself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Luke begins his account here of Christ's ascension in verse 50 by subtly reminding us that the ascension points forward to our promise that belongs to us as followers of Jesus. The promise, this is the promise that Jesus speaks of many, many times, multiple times at the end of Scripture. The promise, behold, I am coming soon. Christ's ascension points forward to that promise of his return. 
We'll see that at the beginning of verse 50 when Luke writes these words, and he led them out as far as Bethany. Now you need to ask yourself the question, why in the world did Jesus go on that journey when he was in Jerusalem? Why did he choose that location? Why didn't he choose to ascend with grand theatrics right off the Temple Mount in the middle of Jerusalem? Because that's what most people would have done. So why did Jesus deliberately go out the eastern gate and up the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem as far as Bethany, which is just on the other side of the summit? Why would he do that? Well, Jesus led his disciples on this journey because he's doing two things as I was studying. it, He's pointing back and he's pointing forward. So first, by going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus is pointing back. I don't mean back to the Garden of Gethsemane when he was on the Mount of Olives. I don't mean he's pointing back to the Olivet Discourse when he talked about his return to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. I don't even mean that he's pointing back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus back when he broke up Lazarus's funeral in John chapter 11. He's not pointing back there either. I mean Jesus here by leading his disciples all the way up the Mount of Olives to Bethany. He is pointing way back. He's pointing 600 years back. Back to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, where the prophet Ezekiel described that because of Israel's rejection of the Lord, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city of Jerusalem and it stood on the mountain that is directly east of the city, the Mount of Olives. And it is there on the Mount of Olives that God's glory departs from Israel because of their rejection of Him. Sound familiar much? Here, Jesus takes his followers on the exact same journey. And as students of the Old Testament, they would have caught on exactly what's going on. He led them out of Jerusalem, out of the eastern gate, up the Mount of Olives, symbolizing that the glory of the Lord, which was daily seen in the face of Jesus Christ, as John 1.14 says, was once again, the glory of the Lord was once again departing from Israel because of their rejection of him. When God's glory departed before, it departed from the Mount of Olives. And so when God's glory departs again, in the person of Jesus Christ, he departs from the Mount of Olives also. So by going to Bethany, it's not just a random choice Jesus makes. He is pointing back. But not only is he pointing back, by going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus is also pointing forward. Pointing forward. Because you see, the Mount of Olives is not the only prophesied location. It's not only the prophesied location of where the glory of God departs. It's interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, it's also the prophesied location where the glory of God will return. See, despite Israel's rejection of him, the Old Testament promises that the Lord is going to return to Israel and indeed is going to return to the very place from which he departed. He will rend the heavens and come down on clouds of glory to set his Foot on this very place, on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 describes this moment. When the Lord declares, they shall look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. And you can read the rest of that thrilling prophecy on your own. But, but what you see here is that by going to the Mount of Olives for his departure, Jesus was deliberately pointing forward to the day of his return, and he wanted us to know that. 
That's why the angels are sent specially from heaven to clarify the point in Acts 1.11 when they say to the awestruck disciples, and we read it this morning, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go, go into heaven. So that's just one of, the, that's one of the greatest realities that the ascension of Christ reminds us of. Just as he was taken, so shall he return. Jesus departed bodily from the Mount of Olives in accordance with the Scriptures. And he's returning bodily someday to the Mount of Olives in accordance with the Scriptures also. Listen up, brothers and sisters. Jesus is coming soon. And the ascension reminds us of this. The ascension of Christ is an internal signpost pointing forward to that wondrous promise prophesied of old, that blessed hope, that glorious appearing. And that's why we should study and we should celebrate Christ's ascension because it gives us hope and it gives us this confidence, ladies and gentlemen, that life is not always going to be like this. That the brokenness won't continue forever. That there's a Savior who's coming, who's going to roll back the curse as far as it's found. Life's not always going to be like this. 2 Peter 3, 4, all things are not going to be continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's not how history works. God enters history and He is going to enter it again. Christ's ascension guarantees this hope and He calls us to cling to it. To lift our eyes up. Lift our eyes up from our earthly circumstances that we're living in and lift our eyes up to heaven from which is coming our hope. The sin that we see around us in the world today, the sin that we feel within us won't last forever. Indeed, it won't even last for long. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. We're going to stand before the Lord of glory. And on that day, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And in that moment, all sin will be gone, all injustice will be corrected and crushed beneath the mighty feet of Jesus, the exalted king. So the ascension points forward to this promise. So we ought to study and celebrate the awe of Jesus' ascension together because the ascension points forward to this promise. He's coming back. Jesus shows that by leading them out as far as Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Second, not only does the ascension point forward to this promise, it also proves our protection. That's at the end of verse 50 where it says, after Jesus leads his disciples up the Mount of Olives as far as Bethany for his ascension, we're told that lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Jesus blessed his people before his departure. And in so doing, he really follows, you need to understand an Old Testament pattern that stretches all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis. We see that, that when a leader or you might say a patriarch, a head of a family, knew that their time of departure was drawing near, you know this is true if you studied the Old Testament, what would they do? They would bless those who were going to be here after their departure. We see that with Abraham in Genesis 22-25. through You see that with Isaac in Genesis 27. 
We see that with Jacob in Genesis 49. You even see that with Moses as the head of Israel in Deuteronomy 31-33. through When a leader or a patriarch was getting ready to depart, they would bless those who came after them. They would give them assurance, you might say, of God's goodness and God's grace and God's guidance in their lives ahead. And it was essentially telling them, this leader would essentially tell them in this blessing, as God has been to me, so he shall be to you. Jesus does the exact same thing here. Knowing that he would soon be taken up into heaven and would depart from them, Luke says here that Jesus blessed them, notice, while lifting up his hands. That's a very important detail. Now, that was a unique action that typically only a priest would perform. And in that Jewish culture, when they blessed someone through the lifting up of hands, the blessing that that priest, that representative of God, would usually recite was the Aaronic blessing of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. It was a whole thing that they would do, trust me. (laughs) And that, that, that promise, that blessing reads this way. The Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. These were likely very similar words to what Jesus Himself imparted to His followers that day, along with what we also study from the rest of the Gospels of the Commission, right? Promises of divine protection, divine grace, divine peace. Now that would have made this blessing particularly encouraging to Jesus' followers because what they understood that day is that these divine blessings once given by a representative of God were irrevocable. Even in the Old Testament, when you study the Old Testament, once given, they could never be taken back. As Numbers 23 verse 19 states, God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? As Paul summarizes it very well in Romans eleven twenty nine, he says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They can't be taken back. And so as Jesus' followers heard those blessings from Jesus that day, they knew, they knew that they would come to pass. That, that promise, that blessing was guaranteed. God will be with us. His grace will sustain us. His peace will watch over us. We are safe in the love of Jesus. You say, well, why would that protection be encouraging to know for his disciples? Because think about what was going to happen to these Christians in just a few short days. In just a few short days, they were going to be dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the same ruling authority over Israel that had revoked every single one of their laws so they could kill Jesus unjustly. And then in a few months, they were going to be mocked and persecuted, beaten and mistreated. Stephen is going to be stoned. James killed. Peter and Paul in prison. In those moments, guess what event these believers fixed their minds upon? Guess what moment they were thinking of as they suffered humiliation in this life? This moment right here. The moment of his ascension when they received this blessing of protection. How do we know this? It's because this is exactly what they testified of when they were standing in those moments of persecution. Why, when Peter and the rest of the disciples stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, and they saw the rods literally being brought out for their beating, 
what did Peter declare? We cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. For this Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree, God has exalted at his right hand as both leader and savior. In other words, we can't back down because we know Jesus Christ is Lord. Their minds went right back to this very moment, to the moment of Christ's ascension and to their receiving of Christ's blessing. God is with us in this moment. His grace will sustain us. His peace will watch over us. We're safe in the love of Jesus. Listen, that blessing, that divine blessing extends to way more than just Jesus' apostles. I want you to know it extends to us as well to all of his followers. And there are so many verses that I wrote down. Just think of some of the words that Jesus said and how it reflects each one of these promises. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He's exalted. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. For he himself has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The answer is nothing. Nothing that Christ in all of his love will not first allow. For Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and he has taken his place in the control center of this universe as both Savior and Lord. There is not a single detail of your life, believer, that is outside of his ever-watching care. As Ephesians 1, 20-21 says, God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. As Peter himself declared in Acts 2, 33-36, in the very first gospel message ever preached by the early church, Peter says this, This Jesus has therefore been exalted at the right hand of God, for David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool underneath your feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the first gospel message the early church ever preached. And our message hasn't changed. Jesus is Lord of all. And because he has ascended, we as his followers know that he is in control of all things. And then that absolutely everything in our lives is going exactly according to His sovereign plan and according to His divine blessing which He has laid upon His people. He is the director of history, which means when we belong to Him, everything that happens ultimately happens for our good. That's awesome. Because of Christ's ascension. This is profoundly comforting because... This is profoundly comforting, especially when we go through times of intense trials, burdens, and pains. We need to remember the exalted Christ and remember His protecting promise. No matter what happens, He will be with me. His grace will sustain me. His peace will protect me. I am safe in the love of Jesus. The ascension proves our protection. 
So we ought to study and we ought to celebrate Jesus' ascension together. Because the ascension points forward to our promise. The ascension proves our protection. And finally for today, because I've run out of time and I knew I would. (laughs) The ascension pictures our power. This was really something I had never seen in this passage before until I studied it this week. I want you to notice a detail that Luke gives here. Immediately after he tells us that by lifting up his hands, Jesus blessed them, Luke immediately adds after that at the beginning of verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them. Now why would Luke do that? Why would he mention how Jesus was blessing them when he's just said that Jesus was blessing them in the previous verse? Why would he do this? And the answer is because Jesus, because Luke's not only telling us the action that Jesus took, he's telling us the timing in which he did it. While he blessed them, he parted from them. Which means Jesus' blessing was bestowed upon his disciples as he was ascending into heaven. Now that's very important because again, Going back to that Old Testament pattern, which is what I've been studying this week, that Old Testament pattern of leaders and patriarchs blessing those who would come after them, part of that departure blessing, when you study them, would be an assumed transferal of that individual's office, authority, responsibility, and really almost status. Right. So for example, if you study Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there was a passing on it's very clear to see of the patriarchal responsibilities, right? You are now father of the family, right? You're in charge, right? You're taking my place here. And again, with Moses, there was a transfer of, a, of leadership, authority, and status to Joshua. So whenever there's a departure blessing that's given in Scripture, there's always a part of that, just almost you could say job description passed on as well. A part of the authority, responsibility, status in life. And by the way, you see this in other Old Testament stories, like with Elisha and Elijah. Remember the weird thing that happens at the end of Elijah's life, right? Elisha's chasing after depressed Elijah so desperately in 2 Kings chapter 2. You say, why in the world is he doing that? Well, it's because Elisha knew he was receiving Elijah's job description. But Elisha wanted way more than just a job description passed on to him. Elisha wanted the status. He wanted the authority. He wanted the power. Quite nearly, he wanted the life of Elijah passed on to him so that he could carry out the mission he was receiving. So the receiving of a blessing in the Old Testament culture was very similar to the receiving, I guess you could say, of a will in our culture. When someone dies... The recipient of the will receives something of the status and of the life of the departed transferred to him. So it is here, as Jesus blessed his disciples in his departure, he passed on something of his status and his life to his followers. And so now the significance of when Jesus blesses his followers suddenly becomes clear. Because think about it for me with a moment. Jesus didn't bless his followers when he was serving under Joseph as a carpenter in Galilee, did he? Because he wasn't passing on to us the life, power, and status of a craftsman. And he didn't bless them on the cross as a humble and earthly servant, though he was one. He wasn't passing on to us, even as followers of his, a life, status, and power of a dying servant. And Jesus didn't even bless his followers in his resurrected form. He wasn't passing on to us even the life, status, and power of a restored humanity. And I don't even, I can't even comprehend the fullness of what I'm about to say. Jesus blessed his disciples as he was ascending. It is as if 
It is as he enters his exalted state that he occupies in heaven this moment that he blesses those who would come after him. Meaning that Jesus passed on to us, his followers, the very life, status, and power of the exalted Christ himself to carry out his mission. This is the power, this is the life that's been given to us that is ours in Christ. The very life and power of the Christ who is enthroned in glory on high. It is not the Christ meek and mild, a baby laying in the manger that we've received. It is the life of the Christ described in Revelation 1, 13-16. The one who is unveiled in glory, who is clothed with a white robe and a golden sash around his chest, with hair that's as white, white like wool, like snow, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, whose face is like the sun, shining in full strength. That is the Jesus who blessed his followers. This This is the exalted Christ who has passed on his blessing, indeed his very own life, authority, and power to us. Colossians, for your life is hidden where? In Christ with God. It's his life you've received. The exalted Christ. That's how Paul can say so confidently, you know what? No matter what God sends you through, I know that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Why? Because you receive the blessing of the exalted Christ. The exalted Christ. This is a picture of our power. It's the picture of the exalted Christ who has passed on to us his very own life, authority, and power. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, this should change the way that you look at yourself and your life and the circumstances in which you live and your ability in which to glorify God in them. It should change the way we look at ourselves, not as having any authority or sufficiency in and of ourselves, as 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, but we are mediators. We are ambassadors. We are representatives of this exalted Jesus. We don't come crawling on our knees to a world saying, would you please consider Jesus? We come to them with power and authority given on high, saying, the King is coming. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. We possess, we are standing in this world on the exalted Christ's behalf. We are standing in his place, possessing his life ordained by his authority. And because of Christ's ascension and the blessing that he bestowed at that very moment, his disciples understood this. Right? This imparting of the life and power of their exalted Lord is the only thing that explains the book of Acts. It really is. It's the only thing that explains the confidence of their living It's the only thing that explains the courage of their preaching in the face of so much hostility and hardship. Drag it over to what we're learning in 1 Peter. It explains not only how Peter could teach 1 Peter, but how he could live it out. It's because he and the rest of the disciples had seen the exalted Christ and they now knew that they stood in his place as representatives of the exalted Lord. As Peter himself said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. Why? What's the reasoning? For the God of our fathers has exalted Jesus as His right hand. It's what gives us courage in this world. That's why the apostles could preach so boldly that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's because they had seen the exalted Christ. This is why Stephen's face shone like an angel and he was able to preach the glories of Jesus. So boldly, it was because, as he himself said in Acts 7.56, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. 
And this is how Stephen was able to face such hostility, cruelty, and malice, living out First Peter's message before us without retreating or retaliating with absolute grace. And he was able to die the most Christ-like death in all of Scripture. Why? It is because throughout the whole ordeal, he was mindful of and seeing the exalted Christ. And that's why Paul, a man who was completely blinded by self-righteousness, anger, and murder, was suddenly transformed on the Damascus Road into a preacher of Christ's righteousness world round. He had seen the exalted Christ. And this is, the ascension is something we don't even study. This is the power of the early church. Brothers and sisters, if we would stand strong in our day, if we're going to reflect unflinchingly the glory of Jesus at this hour, in this place, at this time, bearing witness to His truth, then we must worship not a Jesus who was, but a Jesus who is, who is right now at the right hand of power on high, calling all men to repent and come to Him. We must behold from the pages of Scripture the glory of the exalted Christ as well. Because whether you recognize it or not, we're standing in His place as His body, the church. As mediators and representatives of His life and power until He returns. And this is why we ought to study and celebrate Christ's ascension together. Because Christ's ascension not only points to our promise and proves our protection, It pictures our power. It reminds us of who we represent and the power with which we have to represent Him in this world. So the ascension points to our promise, proves our protection, and pictures our power. Man, and we're only halfway done. It is true. And in my study, maybe, maybe this is wrong to say, I feel like the best is yet to come. We'll have to stop here, but this week I want to encourage all of you, all those who are in the exalted Christ, I want to encourage all of you not to live merely beneath the glories of Christ's life and first coming. To not only live beneath the glories of Christ's sacrifice, which we should, and to not only live under the glories of Christ's resurrection, but this week... Let's strive by God's grace to live under the glories of Christ's ascension. Don't worship a Jesus who was. Make sure you let all the world know that you're worshiping Jesus who is. Who is right now at the right hand of the majesty on high and is coming soon to return just as he left. This week, remember the promise. That's yours. This week, remember the protection. That is yours. And this week, remember the power. That is yours through your exalted Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Until then, this is the word of God from Luke 24, verses 50 through 51, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until Christ our Lord returns. To that end, as the men come forward for the celebration of communion today, let's pray. Father, I thank you I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the glories of His person and work. 
And Father, I thank You that even in His exaltation, He was thinking and working and caring for us. I thank You that it is true, just as John testifies that having loved his own, even unto death He loved them to the uttermost. Father, in anticipation for next week, we thank You that He ever lives to make intercession for us. We thank You for the Spirit that He has given so that we might know Him and commune with Him at all times. We thank You for the promise that He's coming. We thank You for the protection that no matter what we face in life, we can face it boldly with courage, knowing that we are safe in the love of Jesus. Father, we thank You for the power that we've received from Him. Power, even as He said in the end of Luke, from on high. We now know that You can indeed honor and glorify Yourself far beyond all imagining in Christ Jesus and in the church. Do that work in us, Father, we pray. For we seek to honor Jesus and exalt Him as our exalted Lord. Give us grace towards this end of this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.